Welcome to the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. In this series, Women in Technology and Innovation, we are shining a spotlight on the remarkable female entrepreneurs, business leaders, and engineers who are changing the world through industry and innovation. I'm your host, Samantha Wallravens. This week, I have the privilege of talking with Ruth Farmer, Chief Evangelist at Computer Science for All and former Senior Policy Advisor for Tech Inclusion under President Obama. Ruth has spent over two decades advocating for equity and diversity in STEM education. The topic of our conversation today is inspiring the next generation of women in tech and why this is important. This is a topic that's near and dear to my heart and it's actually a big part of my book, Geek Girl Rising. Can you start by telling us about your background and why you decided to devote your career to increasing representation of women in minorities in tech? So it's kind of funny because people always ask me, they're like, oh, are you an engineer? Did you work in technology? And I actually didn't. I was in marketing and communications as an undergrad. I did a communications degree in German. And I remember in college taking a class called Rhetoric of Women and learning about all these women who had done incredible things like Sojourner Truth and Ida Wells and being like, why is it taken until I'm almost 22 years old to hear about these women? This is ridiculous. And so that sort of formed my early you know, feminist leanings. And then I w- ended up working in an engineering company that was really like automation type engineering. And I could see things from the viewpoint of an engineer. I sort of learned to speak engineer and I thought maybe I should have been a mechanical engineer in my life. And so later I managed to bring both of those sentiments together. I started working with the Girl Scouts on programs and we got an opportunity. Intel gave a grant to the Girl Scouts to increase participation of girls in science and engineering fair. And I just leaned in heavily to that opportunity. And I was like, this is it because tech and engineering and engineers create the world around us. And if women are not part of that, then the world around us is not going to be as good as it could be. And it's not as good for all people if all of the the designed world is being designed by a, a small percentage of the population. So that's how I ended up strangely becoming a, what I call a manufacturer of engineers instead of an engineer myself. And tell us about the computer science for all program, because As we know, computer science and engineering are not required subjects in school, and that's a major problem in the fact that many girls and underrepresented minorities are not pursuing careers in technology and engineering. And the students who do study it in grade school, high school, even college are often doing it on their own. They do it for fun. And those are the kids who go on to study it and and pursue it in their careers. So what is CS for All doing? Tell us about the program and how, how it's trying to accomplish this goal of getting more girls into tech. Sure. So there's been a movement to get more diversity in computer science for some time and to introduce computer science into the educational system. Like you said, broadly, engineering and technology is not an official part of school because school was built in a pre-industrial time. We built the high school system of the United States before the Industrial Revolution. So at that time, any engineering you did was farming. And that was something you either did much younger than high school or was done by someone else for you. So we've now, you know, been iterating on a hundred plus year old system for a long time, but clearly the world has changed. And there's things that we need to modernize in education, computing being one of them, given how much of our day 
we are reliant on computing to work, to communicate, to educate, et cetera, and access information, which I think has now become more and more critical for equity. So the Computer Science for All initiative, President Obama announced his initiative in January of 2016, just after the State of the Union. And obviously, you know, there had been work going on prior to that. And President Obama took that opportunity to lift up and propel that work forward. This was the last STEM initiative of his administration. And so you're obviously going to pick something that actually has the opportunity to succeed and is not at ground zero. So after the end of the administration, I joined an organization called CSNYC. And together we sort of pivoted their New York City model to a national model to get computer science to all students. And that looks like a lot of things. One is what does it look like for computer science to exist in the school systems, which all kids attend? And then what does it look like for the out of school time system, which is pivotal to many of the low income students? They depend on places like the Boys and Girls Club or the Girl Scouts or the Boy Scouts or 4-H for that extracurricular opportunities and supports. And so what does it look like for computer science to be integrated into all of those places? And then there's a policy environment that has to change in many cases. So the biggest movement really since 2012 has been to get states to count computer science towards high school graduation. It's still not 100%, but back in 2012, only 10 states would count computer science as a math or a science towards graduation, which means it's an elective, which means it's competing with band and art and like all these other classes. And so one of the things we wanted to do was make sure that computer science was something that college bound and graduation bound students did. And then a second thing is, and this is done a lot in California, is what are incentives that are in the UC admission system? Like, does it benefit you in getting admitted to college to have taken computer science? Are colleges recognizing that as a important course? So policy changes have to take place all over the place, including, you know, at every different state, right? Every state has a different policy environment. Education is very local in the United States. So there is no opportunity for, say, the Secretary of Education to say, everyone do this, right? It has to be done state by state, and even in some cases, school by school. So there's a policy component to our work. And then there's a community component. Obviously, this is not going to get done by one organization or one curriculum or one online platform. This is going to get done by educators and community leaders and out-of-school time providers at the local level. So CS for All convenes the national community of organizations. So we have over a thousand organizations now that are parts of the CS for All movement. And we get together and we collaborate on things and we share knowledge across organizations. And that includes funders, school districts, curriculum providers, researchers, like all kinds of different players in the in the stack, as we would call it in tech, of people working on the problem. So what are the biggest challenges been in trying to roll out computer science in the school system. I would think that training teachers or finding teachers who have the skills to to teach computer science would be a big challenge. But what have you found in your experience? Training teachers is a challenge and identifying teachers is a challenge, but I think the default is often like, oh, we, if we just train the teachers, but the teachers don't plan the school class schedule. The teachers don't control whether or not the district is prioritizing funding for computer science. 
So really you have to look at it from a district perspective. So CS for All has a really great program called Script and you work with the district and the educators and the counselors, be the whole team at the table because the counselors are advising kids to take certain courses, right? The teachers are teaching the courses. The graduation requirements for a school may be set by that principal. They may be set by the district or set by the state. So it's not just as simple as we need to train teachers to teach computer science. The other thing is putting a computer science teacher in a high school doesn't create CS for all. Having students learn computing throughout their K-12 process starting in kindergarten so that they get to high school ready to make an educated decision to take computer science. You don't be like, welcome, this is math. When you get to high school, you're learning math every year progressively. Computing needs to be the same thing. And that's going to take some time. And so I think the biggest hurdle to that from a systems change standpoint is right now in the U.S., there's very little being done in colleges of education to prepare all teachers with a knowledge of computing. So one of the things I'm looking forward to is seeing the rise of like the pedagogy around computer science education for teachers in the colleges of ed. Because if we're graduating teachers every year that don't know anything about computing and now we have to go retroactively train them, that's not nearly as efficient. I'm working on a project actually right now to try to get some funding in to support development of this cohort of faculty of computer science education that are actually in colleges of ed, not colleges of computer science. That's fantastic. So there's so many components involved in this problem we have, which is the lack of diversity in technology. Chapter seven, Geek Rising, talks about how technology is gendered from an early age. So Debbie Sterling, who started a company called Goldie Blocks, which makes toys, engineering toys that are targeted at girls, found this when she was growing up. She said she didn't even know what an engineer was. She thought it was a trained conductor. So, you know, when you go to the big box stores, which now is amazon.com, you go to the girls aisle and you see Barbie dolls and you see, you know, girl toys. And when you go to the, the boy aisles, you see Legos and building toys. Actually, talk about starting K through 12. Do you think it actually starts earlier with girls to, to introduce them to engineering and coding toys? Is that an important factor in getting rid of these stereotypes? Yeah, that's a relatively new thing, the gendering of toys. You might notice behind me, there's a whole lot of toys. I have robots. I have all the computer Barbies, the game developer Barbie, robotics engineer Barbie, etc. And when computer engineer Barbie came out and everyone's like, oh, Barbies are terrible and sexist and blah, blah, blah. I was like, but if girls are going to play with them, at least they're playing with computer engineer Barbie and not like, you know, whatever other depiction they have of what is right for women. I do think that this is a big issue, the societal norms that are perpetuated by media. Like one of my favorite things is the Doc McStuffins effect. So, you know, Doc McStuffins is aimed at like pre-K kids. And it's a show where there's a, a little girl of color who's playing with her toys and playing doctor kind of thing. In the show, her dad is a stay-at-home dad and her mom is a doctor. When that show was originally written, it was a white family. Dad was a doctor, mom was stay-at-home. And they changed it to reflect diversity and reflect sort of a non-traditional gender norm. And little kids now who are surveyed will draw a woman doctor more than half of the time. 
And so you can change things really quickly. And I'm super excited about all the new things happening with media. Like there's popular TV shows like Good Trouble and The Fosters and others that are showing storylines where women are technical. I'm still waiting for some of those storylines to not be always about their struggle being a technical woman because that tends to kind of go that way. You know, we can't expect Hollywood to change overnight. It's not just the toys. It's the TV media. And so years ago, I, I was doing a uh, Lego robotics program for Girl Scouts at the um, local Girl Scout Council in Oregon. We were at a community fair and we're trying to recruit girls to come to a Lego robotics camp. And this little girl comes over and she's looking at everything. She's about nine and really interested. And then her parents come over and her dad is like, go get your brother. He's the Lego guy. He completely dismissed her interest and said, go get the brother. And it turned out the mother was an electrical engineer. The father was a mechanical engineer, but they were still completely blind to their daughter's interest. Well, they bring over the little brother. He's like two. And I was like, well, we have this Lego robotics camp for girls her age. She can come spend time with girls and she can build robots. And I really had to like hard sell it to them. And that tendency that parents have to also perpetuate these ideas. And I thought that was just really interesting that both these parents were engineers, but they were still perpetuating those stereotypes and messaging that to their daughter. Well, that leads to my question about culture. You know, what role does culture or environment in both the classroom and the workplace play in hindering women from pursuing technology studies? And what, one other thing I want to say is I, when I interviewed Maria Clave, who's the president of Harvey Med College, she told me the first thing she did when she became president is she went down her halls in the computer science engineering building and she ripped down half of the photo, the photos that are on the walls of all the great men in science and technology and she replaced it. So it was half women, half men. Yeah, they've done a bunch of studies on classroom environments and the impact that that has on participation of women. And there's a lot of factors in there that people don't realize. For boys, they are kind of going with the flow. They're riding along with the current and a girl has to sort of wade upstream. And so say you're a high school girl and you're like, I'm gonna go take computer science. I'm gonna defy the social norms. I'm gonna leave all my friends behind who are taking some other class. And I'm gonna go take this class with all these boys. So she already has to have a level of self-efficacy that we don't expect of boys. The boys get to just go and try it. And there's no social cost that they have to pay to do that. And then there's factors like, do you feel safe in the building? I've heard from students that, you know, I don't want to be in the computer lab at night because it's all these guys with hoodies on playing violent games and drinking Diet Coke. And it's just like not an environment I want to be in. I've also heard from women in industry, they're like, you know, I went to interview at the startup and felt like a frat house. And I'm like, I don't want to be their mother. I don't want to clean up after them. That's kind of where I would end up. And so the environment can have a huge impact. And there's been studies done, I believe, at University of Washington and other universities looking at the physical classroom environment and the lab environment. And then there's also the bottom line is there's still some really sexist professors in the profession. I have had my students tell me that they've walked into an electrical engineering class and been told, you're in the wrong room, biology's down the hall. I had a student tell me how she was an African-American girl. She was going to a technical university and she was the only woman in her intro to engineering course. And she was late one day 
And the professor stopped the entire conversation and was like, well, glad you could make it to class. Guess we we aren't having an all, all guys day today. Now, can you imagine if he had said, I guess we aren't having an all white day today? Like he would have been fired for that. And so he had othered her in that classroom and now said to all the other young men in the classroom, she's different than you, she's not one of us. And then that gets carried out in how groups are built and group projects are done and other pieces of the environment. So I think for faculty and for peers actually to understand that young women are not playing with the same set of resources. They don't have the same set of resources. The other piece of it that I think people don't realize is young men are tacitly sort of encouraged throughout their lives. Of course you can do it. Go West, young man. Go start that startup. You could do anything, right? This is the messaging. The messaging women receive is, I'm not sure if that's safe, that's risky. You know, would you be safe there? And I remember talking with some staff at a, let's just say a car company in Silicon Valley that was like, well, we hire people who eat, sleep, live and breathe and would sleep in a van in our parking lot to work for us. And I was like, so you don't want to hire any women or you don't want to hire anyone with a disability. And I had been talking to them about how things like housing, you have to have a safe place to live. I've had a number of young women who've gone out to Silicon Valley for internships and ended up in extremely sketchy Airbnb situations where they're like, I don't feel safe here. Like this weird man is hitting on me on my first day and I'm supposed to be here all summer. And so those things happen that make the environment feel unsafe. And so it's hard to thrive in any environment when you don't feel safe. So you are the founder and CEO of the Last Mile Foundation, which is a nonprofit that works to support low-income, underrepresented students in technology and engineering during the last few semesters of college, just to make sure they graduate. The dropout rate is highly problematic. In college engineering programs, they have what we call the weeder classes that weed out students who can't handle the rigor of higher level computer science and engineering courses. So tell us about this foundation, what you do to support these students. And what about these weeder classes? Is this something that is just sort of like a rite of passage? You have to torment yourself and get through it or you just have to quit and say I don't want to get I don't want to get a D or C in a class so therefore I'm going to go major in philosophy where I know I can get an A or a B. How do we solve this dilemma? Yeah the medical establishment used to do the same thing and they got wise after many many years and now we have you know a more women in medical school than men that there's a certain kind of person who is motivated by that kind of weed out competition. And there's a lot of people who aren't motivated by that. And so I think solving that is is something that we need to look at and looking at the intro course is critical. I think it's critical to just understand that a lot of those things have been designed for a certain archetype of person and that limiting our options for talent to this one image of a, of a technical person isn't serving us as a country. And, and so I think that's um, something we need to change. So I launched the Last Mile Education Fund quietly last year before the pandemic. And then loudly last January, I announced uh, $3 million of support that I'd raised for this idea. And my idea is really simple. 11% of low-income students graduate within six years. 11%. That is an obnoxiously bad number. That's the bottom income quartile. If you go up to the next income quartile, we're talking about half of all students, it's 20%. 
So that's such an abysmal success rate. So my theory is if students have persisted and made it to their junior year in computer science or engineering, so many costs have been invested in getting them there from all the engagement and encouragement that happened in high school to the scholarships, to the money they've spent, for them to not finish at that stage is a loss to all of us. Industry loses a qualified person, that student is left with debt and no degree, they never fulfill their potential, they don't pay taxes at the same rate, like all these ways that society suffers when those students don't succeed. I'm like this is a simple thing to solve. And so the Last Mile Education Fund offers different levels of funding, emergency funding, last mile funding, or bridge grants to help students that don't have the kind of familial support or financial ability that affluent students have to be successful. And that could look like you need the upfront money to get to that internship you're going to do for the summer where you're going to get paid, but maybe you don't have two grand to put down on an apartment and transportation. In many cases, low-income students are kind of walking a tightrope financially. Maybe they're working a couple of jobs and trying to balance things. If you lose one of those things, the whole thing goes awry and you need a little bit of help. So when COVID hit, there were a lot of students who couldn't get home. Suddenly they were trying to have internet installed in their houses because they'd been using the school internet. They had to travel somewhere. They didn't have jobs anymore. They lost their jobs. And so we rapidly deployed over 300 mini grants of $599 each to young women who just needed some help to keep them stable and stay the course. So my idea is let's invest in these students with an abundance viewpoint. I don't even ask for their GPA. I don't care what their GPA is. C's get degrees. What I care is that they graduate and become an engineer. Everyone you'll ever talk to who works is like, no one's asked me my GPA in decades and no one ever will. We also are addressing the fact that so much of the scholarship system is on this sort of tyranny of merit, right? So they want to identify the best of the best, who are the best students, and take credit for them and say, look, we gave scholarships to these amazing students. Well, there's a lot of students who would be amazing if they had the same level of resources and they weren't working full time or driving an hour each way because they can't afford to live near their school or whatever the barrier. And so I want students spending their time focusing on becoming great engineers, not trying to like raise money for their education on GoFundMe or <laughs> work two jobs or apply for scholarship after scholarship that never gets back to them. If you come from a low resource high school, the chances of you having had the math preparation that you need for an engineering degree is low. Most students have a bit of an, a grade slump their first year of college. College is a lot harder than high school and it's not as structured and you have to be self-determined. And if you come in having not enough math preparation and your high school didn't offer advanced math or didn't offer quality advanced math, you're gonna have to take those courses the fall term of your freshman year. Well, that puts a low income student into two very hard decisions. One is try to take those courses simultaneous with your engineering courses. So you're learning the concepts as you're supposed to be using them. That's hard. And that's going to depress your GPA. Or you take the remedial courses first. Now you're off cycle because engineering is sequential. So a lot of courses are not going to be offered in the spring that were offered in the fall. You're supposed to be taking them in sequence. So you're either delaying your graduation, costing more money and more time, or you're depressing your GPA. Well, that hits you down the, the road when you're a junior or senior and internships that won't interview you without a certain GPA or opportunities that aren't available, scholarships, because everybody wants the best of the best. 
well, the reality is we're losing a lot of really quality talent that doesn't have all the financial support of their family that we could be incubating. So I'm just investing <laughs> in this talent. And we've invested um, almost half a million dollars now since January of last year in over like 427 students. Your work is so inspiring, Ruth. I, I'm just so grateful. Uh, the last time that we saw each other in person was in San Francisco. We were at the Airbnb headquarters with a group of high school girls who had just won awards through the NCWIT Aspirations in Computing program. Can you tell us a little bit about this program for those of us who are not familiar with the program, what it does? Yeah, and Aspirations in Computing is really what gave me the knowledge I I needed to start the last mile because um, it's, it's founded on a similar principle that there are girls in high school who are interested the system is beating them up at every turn. And so there's a lot of programs to get more girls into computing, like Black Girls Code and Girls Who Code and Girl Scouts are doing things. And that's great, but we're not even keeping the ones who are interested. And so with Aspirations and Computing, we created an award program. The idea is let's find high school girls who are interested in computing and get them all in a room together because there may be only two at their high school, but if we can get all the high schools in a community together and get them all in a room, connect them. And then we connect them into an online community and talk to them until they are into the workforce. And that community continues to grow. I think they inducted 4,100 new girls this year. Um, every year they identify high school girls all over the country and they're being identified for their aspirations in computing. Not have you already won every science fair? Have you already been perfect? Because research shows women won't apply for things they're not qualified for. We're actually looking for your aspirations and your interests. And then we want to incubate that. And so there are now, I believe, more than 90 local implementations of aspirations in computing around the country where the girls are physically meeting and, and getting connected with each other. They all different different types of events. But the goal is you want to recognize them and say, well, you are good at this and you are of value to the community and we want you in this field. And when I give talks at some of these events, I'll be like, look, ladies, nobody's throwing a banquet to get you to major in history, right? So <laughs> we're here trying to get you to major in computer science because we need you and we need your minds in this field and we need your perspectives. And for many of them, it's incredibly validating. I had this one student in Tennessee who we gave her the award and, you know, it was the whole thing. And she had a little consulting company where she would make websites for small businesses in her little town in Tennessee. And she's like, after I got that award, I doubled my rate. It started charging companies more <laughs> money. And then she actually later founded an organization called 100 Girls of Code, which is now scaled across multiple states. But her and another student raised the fund on Kickstarter to do 10 Saturdays over a summer to teach girls across Tennessee teaching coding. And so there's lots of these spin-off things that have happened out of the aspirations in computing community because it's a close-knit group of technical young women talking to each other. A lot of startups have actually come out of there already as well. So I am privileged that I still get to sort of have a front row seat to their lives and watching them progress. And the volunteers that are working on us on uh, Last Mile came from that community. You know, some of them are CTOs now, but they're helping us build technology. They're helping us um, interview students. And it's really gratifying to watch them all kind of grow up. And with the pandemic this last year, 
they obviously had to go to virtual events. So we had a huge all girl award ceremony with Limor Freed, the founder of Adafruit Industries. She was on the cover of Wired a few years back. She's super cool, founded her company in her bedroom at MIT in the dorms. The only chip manufacturer actually manufacturing in the US. She was fantastic. I did the like interview piece with her, but she talked about coding as a superpower. And so it's it's basically a secret society of young women in tech, kind of a girl gang. And I'm really excited about them as they progress into their careers, starting companies, forming teams, hiring within companies and kind of eating tech from the inside out, which I'm already seeing that happen. It's kind of exciting. And it's great that it continues on from high school through college and into the careers. Is there a way to get involved in the aspirations in computing program or with NC WIT? while they're in high in college yeah any college woman in a computing field can apply to join the aspirations community and they actually have a collegiate award which is huge the prize is like ten thousand dollars and the the runner-up is twenty five hundred dollars and and it's not a scholarship it's like cash to you which is really helpful because so many scholarships are so restricted to just tuition or just books and other supplies. So you just go to aspirations.org and you can sign up as a collegiate member. And then throughout the year, I know they just has had a special event recently with Apple. They do special events with different partners and sponsors. And then I do my little part to keep them moving. This month, we're doing a next generation of women in tech for uh, Women's History Month with CS for All. So every day you will see a woman, a young woman who's up and coming in tech. And those are all young women from aspirations and computing that we're like featuring. And, and I find that just talking about technical young women and putting them in front of people is a great way to get them opportunities. Yeah. So just going back to a bigger picture here, the U.S. lags so far behind other countries in the number of technology, engineering, computing degrees at grants each year. I think the most recent number was 21% of US degrees are in computing and engineering compared to 40% in China and 35% in Germany. This is a big problem because it's putting the US far behind other countries in our innovation ecosystem in order to keep our country and our economy strong. We need to be able to compete on a global level. So you worked under Obama. You're a publicly public policy advocate. Do you feel that leaders are really recognizing the severity of the problem and doing something about it? Or are they just paying lip service to it by putting out their, you know, five-year strategic plan and calling it a day? Well, I have high hopes for the new administration, obviously. The borders are effectively closed right now because of COVID, right? So importing talent is not a sustainable strategy for our country. Um, There's been all this negative pressure on immigration and visas. So there's that issue. And then there's simply like global transportation and movement is just not happening in and it won't happen for a few years. I think this is an opportune time to really double down on incubating the home team. You know, we are United States State Department. And when I was at Oxford University, all the folks that were studying, you know, global development, all the messaging is, invest in women. That's how you grow your economy, bring women into your economy and educate people. Yet here we are not doing the same in our own country. One of my goals when I worked in the Obama administration was to convince the defense and intelligence agencies that computer science education was their problem to solve. 
One, because it's a huge component of national defense that we have technologists and technology that is secure. Two, because talent is how we do that. And three, all Americans being savvy about technology and what it can and cannot do is part of our national defense and protecting us. If you look at all the misinformation and the ways that we've been manipulated throughout the last two elections, there's a significant threat to our sovereignty from interference through technology. And so people just need to be savvy consumers of technology, full stop, whether you're in the field or not. I'm happy to say we've been actually kind of successful in this realm. And this year we managed to pass a a new law called the Promotes Act, which found this little wedge that I could drive into the Defense Department in that junior ROTC is the largest youth program funded by the Defense Department. It's a hundred years old. And I found out that of the 3,400 high schools that host junior ROTC, only 32% of them offered AP computer science. So we wrote some legislation that basically was like, look, we need to make sure that schools that serve JROTC also offer preparation in computing. And so the Promotes Act was passed in 2020 for um, the 2021 Defense Act. And then along with that, $13 million was appropriated into the JROTC budget for training and education in STEM, computer science, cybersecurity, data science, all those things. So starting to get the wheels moving. And then a report recently came out from um, the Defense Department on um, talent and equity and racial equity and the need for talent as part of a defense strategy. So that's exciting. You know, we've been trying a long time to get the Department of Education to spend money on this. And they did recently, about 18% of a recent STEM research funding went to computing related programs, which is good. But, you know, we've had 40 years to learn how to teach math or learn how to teach science. So it's going to take more than one round of funding. And I think it came to 118 million of investment to get us to where we are really good at teaching computing to all students. I'm hopeful. I I think too that the pandemic has really illuminated and laid bare the inequities around broadband access in this country and device access. And I think we may finally see some really meaningful legislation and action on that. Um, Certainly in this first stimulus package, there will be money for um, broadband access, but we've got to get to a place where every student not only has bare minimum $10 a month internet, which is not enough by any stretch for a family to truly participate, especially in this pandemic situation, but have a good internet for everybody and that students actually have a device that they can spend the time learning and practicing and not just, you know, get by. Well, Ruth, you are such an inspiration. I don't know how you can do all you do with just 24 hours in the day, but thank you for all you do. Thank you for joining the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. The Lehigh at NASDAQ Center is a collaboration between Lehigh University and the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center. Our mission is to educate, connect, and inspire the next generation of global entrepreneurial leaders. To learn more about us, go to nasdaqcenter.lehigh.edu and follow us on Instagram at Lehigh Nasdaq Center. I hope that you feel as inspired as I do from learning about the important work Ruth is doing to get more girls learning technology and coding skills. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast content. 
Listen in next week for an exciting conversation with Sarah Lucian, the head of passenger experience at Virgin Hyperloop. Sarah will discuss cutting edge transportation technology and what she sees on the horizon.